Judges 14, which I invite you to turn to now, opens with an unhappy household. Manoah and his wife were at loggerheads with their headstrong son, Samson. He had been down to Timnah and had come back with devastating news. There he had laid eyes on a young Philistine woman. A woman I have seen in Timnah is a literal translation of Samson's statement. The emphasis is on woman, giving it the sense of, did I see a woman in Timnah? Samson had been smitten, and he was adamant his father must arrange for this marriage to take place. Manoah and his wife are shattered. They had lived in the hope of this child promised by God, a child to be set apart to God, as Judges 13 and verse 5 tells us. And now this, imagine the scene. Manoah, half imploring, half exploding. Samson, she's a Philistine for goodness sake. What are you thinking? But this cuts no ice with Samson. Get her for me, he persists. To which his father and mother reply, isn't there an acceptable woman among our relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? Samson, that girl is a non-believer, an idol worshipper, a pagan. But as far as Samson is concerned, it's like water off a duck's back. Manoah and his wife might as well be talking to the wall. She is the right one for me, he says. Samson is a typical judge's man, doing what is right in his own eyes, doing his own thing. And in so doing, bringing great upset to the family. Many Christian parents have stood in Manoah and his wife's shoes. Perhaps not always precisely in this context. But perhaps there has been in their offspring differences of opinion expressed. Differences of belief. Differences of lifestyle. Which have caused heartache. Made all the more acute. Because the love that only a father or mother can have for a son or daughter makes this so dreadfully difficult to bear. In such situations, knowing the right thing to say and the right way to say it can be as tricky as negotiating an unmarked minefield and with similar explosive consequences. Such situations require much prayer. Prayers for courage. Prayers for love. Prayers for wisdom. With a recognition of the pressures on young people in these days. But also, as a church, our awareness of such circumstances should create in us a priority to pray 
to pray for our young families, to pray for their parents, to pray for the children. Prayers that the love of Jesus would be a living reality in relationships we bring before the throne of grace. Prayers for graceful dealings one with another. Prayers for the best that only God and Jesus Christ can bring. It's incredibly important as this is. There is more than this going on in Judges 14. In the midst of a passage in which secrets predominate, the secret of the slaying of the lion, the secret of the honey, the secret of the riddle, by far the most important is the secret of God's purpose. Look at verse 4. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. At one level, the passage is to do with family angst as a much-loved son goes off the rails. At another level, we're alerted to the fact that in the midst of all this messiness, God is at work, at work to bring deliverance. God is in control. For Manoah and his wife, as they went through the trauma that only family can bring, this would have probably and understandably been the last thought in their mind. In similar circumstances, in all the scary destructiveness, meanness and messiness of life, be that domestic or global, we may have precisely the same thoughts. Where is God in all of this? Is he there? Does he care? What this episode in the Samson cycle tells us is, yes, he is, and yes, he does. Yes, he is there. Yes, he does care. And also tells us that neither human foolishness or human fallenness is going to prevent him from accomplishing his design. That is not to deny human responsibility, our responsibility in the midst of such events. But it is to affirm that God's will will be done, his good and perfect will. That truth, of course, is not always easy to hold on to, particularly when we look out on the world as it is at present, in the midst of the horror and madness of war, with all the harrowing hurt and devastation that it brings. So, how do we hold on to faith in such times? Our faith that nothing is going to prevent God from accomplishing his design. We look at the one place where it seemed as if all hope had gone. The light extinguished. Darkness supreme. We look to the cross. We put our hope in the cross. We put our hope in a crucified man. Listen to some lyrics from a Graham Kendrick song we used to sing in our church in Edinburgh. I've placed all my hope in a crucified man, in the wounds in his side, his feet and his hands. I have traded my pride for a share in his shame and the glory that one day will burst from his pain. I believe that they, as they beat on his beautiful face, 
He turned a torturer's chair to an altar of grace, where the worst we can do met the best that God does, where unspeakable hate met the gaze of unstoppable love. At the crux of all things, there he hangs. I've placed my hope in a crucified man, a crucified man who rose from the dead, who will come again, who will make all things new. The comfort of the cross, the comfort of the resurrection, the comfort of Christ coming again, the comfort of knowing that nothing is going to prevent our God from accomplishing his design, his plan of salvation. The secret of God's purpose, the sign of God's strength. Samson, his mother and father, head down to Timnah together. But as they approach the vineyards of Timnah, Samson is on his own. Is this because as a Nazarite set apart by God, and so to have nothing to do with grapes or wine, He's on his own because he's going somewhere. He knows he shouldn't. We don't know that. What we do know is that suddenly, a young lion comes roaring towards him. I watch any nature program on TV will leave you in no doubt as to the power and ferocity of a lion as it bears down on its prey. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson in power so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. It was as easy as that because Samson's strength came from the Lord God Almighty. The mangled lion is meant as the Lord God signed to Samson. It shows him what God can and will do through him. It shows him that the God who makes him able to dispatch a lion can also empower him to do the same to the Philistines, which, as we shall shortly see, is of course what happens in Ashkelon. The sign of God's strength, the sign of his spirit coming upon Samson in power and transforming him, and in so doing, transforming the situation he finds himself in. The power that comes against Samson is no match for the power of God, the Spirit of God that comes upon him. And this is not the last time the Lord God's Spirit will come upon Samson, enabling him to fulfill God's purposes. As already said, this is what happens in Ashkelon at the end of the chapter. And what happens next chapter, in chapter 15, on Jawbone Hill, a bigger battle with bigger Philistine casualties. Samson receives power, God's power, God's spirit to empower him, to enable him. The power of the spirit, which we are told comes upon Samson from time to time. With the coming of Christ, it is different. In John 14 and verse 17, Jesus promises his disciples that the Holy Spirit lives with you and will be in you. The Spirit will indwell his followers, every last one of them. And Jesus follows this up in Acts 1 and verse 8. 
with these words. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will receive power, the power of the Spirit, the power of God, the same Spirit of the Lord that came upon Samson to enable you, Jesus says, to do what I want you to do. To enable us to do what God wants done. The Spirit of God in you and in me. That we might fulfill God's purposes. Be his witnesses in word and deed. Do we take that seriously? Do we take these words of the Apostle Paul seriously? In Romans 8 and verse 11. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. The spirit is living in me and you. If we have accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, that is the truth. That is the living reality. And he is there for a purpose. To show us more of Jesus. And to show more of Jesus to others through us. Does this reality, the indwelling presence of the living God, have the powerful effect on our life that it should. Amy Carmichael said, let me not think to be a clod. Make me thy fuel, O flame of God. Let me not think to be a clod. Make me thy fuel, O flame of God. The sign of God's strength, the power of God seen in Samson, the sign of God's presence, the sign of God's power, the sign of the Spirit. Is there a sign of Him in our lives? The sign of God's strength. The sign of God's strength. The weakness of God's servant. Already in his dallying in pagan Philistia and frequenting the vineyards of Timna, the warning signs have been there. And the downward spiritual trend continues. En route for the wedding, Samson compromises his Nazarite status further. He turns aside to look at the lion's carcass. In it, he finds a swarm of bees and some honey, which he scoops out and eats giving some to his mother and father, but not telling them where it came from. Why the reticence? Was it again to do with God's law in number six, saying that a Nazarite was not to go near a dead body and therefore that this food was unclean? Did that word disturb Samson? Albeit not enough to correct his behavior? Again, 
we do not know. What we do know is that there then follows the equivalent of a Philistine stag do, a drinking feast. That's how the word for feast can be translated in verse 10. Again, not a place for a Nazarite. As well as a prohibition on dead bodies, as we've already said, God's law for a Nazarite clearly says, no grapes, no wine. Once again, God's word does not seem to impact on Samson's life. Which is, of course, precisely what it is intended to do. Then and now. And if that does not happen, if God's word does not impact on our life, then the world will. Which is what we see happening. We see Samson entering into the swing of things in Timnah. He puts on the feast. The Philistines provide him with 30 companions. And Samson immediately proposes some additional entertainment. He sets him a riddle. If they can solve it, then it is the Philistine equivalent of Giorgio Armani suits all round for them. If they lose, Samson will have a designer wardrobe to die for. The Philistines are up for it. Let's hear your riddle, they say. To which Samson replies, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. We, of course, are in on the secret. We, unlike anyone else, know all about the lion, the bees, and the honey. But not so the Philistines. And after three days, the 30 companions are beginning to sweat. Turning up for the free drink is one thing. But subsidizing this upstart Israelite's finery is quite another. And on the fourth day, the murderous nature of these companions comes out as they put pressure on the bride. Be your old seductive self and worm the riddle out of your husband, they say. Otherwise, we will burn you and all your father's household to death. Nice people. Suddenly, the wedding celebration takes on an entirely different atmosphere. Leading the bride to turn on the waterworks and play you don't really love me card. You hate me. You don't really love me. You've given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. I haven't even explained it to my father or mother, Samson replied. So why should I explain it to you? But under her constant cajoling, at last, Samson caves in. He tells, she tells. And before the deadline, the Philistines hit the honey and lion jackpot. This eliciting a not terribly flattering rejoinder by Samson concerning his wife, who he of course immediately recognizes as the source of the leak. 
not a terribly edifying picture. And for those who have heard the whole story of Samson, there is a foreshadowing here of Samson telling a far more sacred secret to Delilah in Judges 16 with tragic consequences. And in both cases, Samson's failure was the same. He was pressed by his bride in 14 and 17 and prodded by Delilah in chapter 16 and verse 16 and gave in. The weakness of God's servant. The point should not be lost on any of God's servants. Dallying with the world, being in our own timna, wherever that might be, will not end well for us. Being places we should not be, places in which we are susceptible to our weaknesses, places where we can experience spiritual harm, will not end well for us. And awareness of our own weakness is the beginning of safety in such circumstances. And every one of us will know our weaknesses. This was a lesson Samson did not learn. Samson was fraternizing with the enemy and in so doing, giving expression to the attitude of Israel at large, giving expression to the weakness of God's servant Israel. Israel was supposed to be distinctive from all the people around them. A people set apart for God, a people under God, under his word. But by the time of Samson, Israel had so accommodated herself to the Philistine world around her that the reality spoken in 14 and 4, that the Philistines were ruling over Israel, was taken for granted. Indeed, when Samson begins to rock the boat in Judges 15, the men of Judah remind him, don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? The weakness of God's servant Israel the parlous state of God's people epitomized by Samson, a situation in which everyone did as they saw fit to quote the concluding line of judges. Words which could easily be used to describe our own day. A day in which God's people can find themselves so entwined with the world around them that God's word does not impact them in the way that it should. Does God's word impact us the way it should? Does God's word impact our words? Does it impact our deeds? The weakness of God's servant, the weakness of God's people. Are we aware of our weakness? aware of our susceptibility to be influenced by all that is around us. As already said, the awareness of that weakness is the beginning of safety, the beginning of our looking to God, the only one with the power to change things and the one who desires to do so, the one who desires to do precisely that. In the midst of all the mayhem of this chapter, in the midst of events which you would not find in any best practice of mission manual, in the midst of all the weakness of God's servant, Samson, 
Here again, these words in verse 4, this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines for at that time they were ruling over Israel. In all the awful events of verses 19 and 20, we see the beginning of God's deliverance of his people. It is messy. It is brutal. We may have many questions concerning the whys and the wherefores and about the raw burning anger in Samson in the aftermath of the terrible carnage. But the one thing we cannot do is deny what God's word tells us about Samson. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. That was what led to the demise of those 30 men in Ashkelon. That was how God began to confront the Philistines, that his people might be delivered. This was from the Lord. In the midst of this terrible time, God is at work. His spirit is at work, the spirit of the judge of all the earth. And will he not do right? In this, there is comfort. In this, there is encouragement that we so much need at a time like this. We so much need encouragement. In the midst of seemingly incomprehensible events, God is at work to bring forth deliverance for his people. Who, looking at these events recorded in Judges 14, could discern God's hand at work had his Holy Spirit not revealed it to us. So do today in the midst of this terrible time in Ukraine, these incomprehensible events, we hang on, believing in faith that God is at work by his Spirit that he's able even in such awfulness to bring deliverance and fulfill his purposes even in the face of the weakness of his servants and if that is the case in Timna and the Ukraine then surely it's the case too in Uddingston on the surface there may be little likelihood as far as we're concerned of God being at work. We look out. We see not a lot happening. We see people walking past the door. We see people not interested. From our perspective. But God's work to us today says he is able to bring deliverance in the unlikeliest of circumstances, even in the face of the weakness of his servants. Deliverance in Jesus Christ. New life in Jesus Christ. Life that death cannot defeat. Conscious of our weakness, but also conscious of our God and that his purposes will be fulfilled. We go forward in faith. Amen.